Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this week of camp meeting. I'm so thankful that I was able to be here and do this seminar this week, and I'm thankful for everyone that attended. And Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would, as a church, always remain faithful to your word, no matter what it costs, because that's the only safe thing to do. And so, Father, we ask your blessing on Elder Mitchiff and the leadership of the conference. We're very thankful for Elder Gallimore's leadership for 27 years. But now, according to your plan, that we have new leaders and they need your blessing and the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we thank you for this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday, <clears throat> I was talking about some amazing facts that I discovered as I was in the process of making the transition from the Lutheran to the Adventist church. <clears throat> and there's one more that I wanted to mention. In July 1519, Martin Luther, Melanchthon, and Andreas Karlstedt, his two co colleagues, were invited to debate with the Catholic theologian, John Eck, E-C-K, at Leipzig, Germany. And the debate dealt with the authority for faith and life. And the reformers, they argued for the authority of the Bible alone. John Eck, the Catholic theologian, he argued for the authority of the church as represented by the papacy. And later, Eck wrote a volume entitled 404 Theses, in which he was arguing against the Reformation. But in that document, he exposed what he referred to as the inconsistency of the Reformers. And I want to tell you, he was right on that. Because he said to them, in effect, that if you really believe, if you really hold to the Bible alone, you could not hold to the first day of the week for which there is no biblical authority. That's what he said. And he said that to continue holding to Sunday was to recognize the primacy of the Roman church. And in his handbook, entitled Handbook of Commonplaces, <clears throat> he wrote this. And this is astounding. This is the amazing fact. He said, quote, The Sabbath is commanded many times by God. 
neither in the Gospels nor in Paul is it definite that the Sabbath has ceased. Nevertheless, the Church, the Roman Catholic Church, has instituted the Lord's Day through the tradition of the apostles without scripture, unquote. I retired in 1994, and in 1995, a little bit later, something came to my hand. I can't remember how I got a hold of this. In fact, I still have it in the back of my Bible here. <clears throat> but it was uh, a copy of the parish paper of St. Catherine Catholic Church right here in Algonac, Michigan. That was published May 21, 1995. And listen to what this parish paper of that Michigan Adventist Church said, quote, Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday. Not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy." Unquote. What is this? This is the little horn power of Daniel 7.25 that will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the times and the law. No matter what we do, we'll serve to sanctify Sunday or Sabbath. We don't sanctify the seventh day. That would be legalism. God has already sanctified it by his word and command. He alone can make something holy. The commandment is to keep holy what he has made holy. That's not so complicated to understand. And though his contribution to the Reformation was enormous, for which we can be grateful, Luther was nevertheless unfaithful to the Word of God himself with respect to the Sabbath. <clears throat> 
And can you imagine what started to happen to my thinking and to my trust in and respect for Luther when I was able to absorb these amazing facts? For a while, I was a man without a church. But gradually, I knew what I had to do. And it's on that basis that I'm going to share with you something today. And Luther helped me make that decision when I discovered these amazing facts. And I don't regret it. It was difficult, yes. But I don't regret it because it's Bible truth. And that's the issue. That's always the issue. What is the truth? What does the Bible say? And once you see the truth, you have no other choice. If you're a child of God and you know the Bible is God's word, and once you see the truth, you don't have any other choice. You have to follow it. No matter what. My conscience is captive to the word of God, said Luther. So, here we stand. Here I stand. And I'm going to share some of that with you. No, the Reformation is not over. There is yet work to be done. And God has chosen a people to do it, to continue the Reformation. And we say that humbly, not boastfully. Let's remember that. Because there's a price to pay always for faithfulness. The Seventh-day Adventist Church may very well be, if you know what has been happening within Protestantism over the last few decades, But the Seventh-day Adventist Church may very well be the lone voice in the context of churches that have been capitulating to culture. And I'll show what I mean by that. As they, become, as they have become an increasingly acclimated to the culture. And the most recent example of that is that of the United Methodist Church, which just recently consecrated a lesbian as a bishop. And there has been a strong reaction to that within the United Methodist Church, and there has been serious talk of schism in the, in the United Methodist Church. And one big church already left it. Part of the ethos of the time of trouble is that faithful believers 
are in conflict with the world and worldliness and that they envision the church of Christ as a holy community. And in the struggle to stay true to the word of God, the value of unity and like-minded Christian friends is boundless. And the word says, listen to this, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, why well, might as well include and sisters because it's a generic, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then let's look at Philippians chapter 1. beginning with verse 27. Or Paul says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The authority of God's word was the issue at the time of the Reformation and it's the issue today. I've said that a number of times but that's all right because the more you say it, the more it's heard, the more it sticks. Why was that and is that so? Because, and I'm going to quote Ellen White here, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 55, and listen carefully. Whatever contradicts God's word, we may be sure, proceeds from Satan. Now, I didn't say that. She said it. But it's true. And speaking of the early church, the book of Acts says in chapter 2, verse 46, and then chapter 4, 32 and 33, Continuing daily with one accord and singleness of heart, 
The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony, and great grace was upon them all. But Satan, the enemy of God's church, was determined to destroy its unity. And soon, even way back then, divisions and schisms rent the church. And that's still the devil's strategy. And all of that, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brought about exhortations such as these that I'm going to read to you now from Paul and Peter and others, because a disunited church is a powerless church. Romans 12:16. Live in harmony with one another. Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify God, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Philippians 2, 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What does the same mind mean? The answer is in Philippians 2, verse 5 and verse 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Obedient to what? The word and the will of God. No division, in full agreement and unified by the truth of God's word. Deuteronomy 8.3 Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 105 Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6 Every word of God proves true. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. John 17, verse 17. 
Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Philippians 2, 14, 16. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. 2 Timothy 've got the reference wrong there, but anyway, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's what Paul said to young Timothy, who was going to take his place not too long in the future as a leader of the early church, rightly handling the word of truth. 1 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8. Those who do not believe stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Revelation 22, verse 7. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then John 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Jesus says to his people, Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, all of the reformers that I have mentioned this week and others, including the Waldensians, did not have all the light. But they were firmly united on what Ellen White calls, quote, the grand principle. Listen to what she says. General, Great Controversy, page 249. The grand principle maintained by these reformers was the infallible authority of the Holy Scriptures as a rule of faith and practice, and practice. The Bible was their authority, and by its teaching, they tested all doctrines and all claims 
and we might as well say all proposals or changes. Now, she did not hesitate to use the word infallible. You know, sometimes we hear accusations against the fundamentalists. And I remember Dr. Tom Blinko, who was the chairman of the theology department at the seminary when I first came there. I, heard, I remember her, hearing him say, what's wrong with being fundamental? And believing in the infallibility of the scriptures is being fundamental. Um, let me repeat again what she said. The grand principle maintained by these reformers was the infallible authority of the Holy Scriptures as a rule of faith and practice. The Bible was their authority, and by its teaching they tested all doctrines and all claims. Now, she did not hesitate to use the word infallible. which means incapable of error, unerring, regarding faith and morals. The word, the scripture, will not mislead us or deceive us. What it says is God's truth. And I remember when I came to the seminary as a Lutheran, yet I hadn't decided I wanted to discover the truth A group of the professors at the seminary agreed to meet with me every Wednesday evening to discuss any subject that I wanted to talk about. The only stipulation was that I would give them a week's notice in advance of what I'd like to talk about. And I, I, as I remember correctly, there were five or six of them. And I, when I raised questions or something, the response was, well, let's look at what the Bible says. And it was masterfully done. I appreciated it so much. What does the Bible say? And we're going to do that today. We're going to take a look at that. And what I have shared with you up to now represents the foundation of my spiritual heritage. Which compelled me to eventually join the Seventh-day Adventist Church when the Lord got my attention. And I want to assure you that when I was at the seminary, as still a Lutheran and in these discussions with faculty members, nobody, they treated me with a great deal of respect. They always called me Pastor Holmes. 
until eventually it became brother homes. But nobody made any kind of promises to me. Nobody said, if you join the Seventh-day Adventist Church, well, we're going to do this, you're going to be here, you're going to do that. No, nothing. I want to make that clear so nobody misunderstands that I was enticed to become a Seventh-day Adventist by some, you know, major promise regarding my future. What year was this? Pardon? What year was this? 70, 71. 1970, 1971. And now, by way of illustration, I want to put everything that I've said this week in the contemporary context in which our church finds itself today. And I'm talking about the ordination issue and the disunity that threatens the mission of this church. I know this is a sensitive issue. There are some people that wish we wouldn't talk about it at all, but I'm sorry it's there. It's a crisis. We have to deal with it. And we're going to look at three Bible texts that are crucial to the issue. But first, I want to review the Bible, the principles of Bible interpretation. That's called hermeneutics, by the way. That the Lord has given this church by means of the spirit of prophecy. Do we believe in the spirit of prophecy or not? If we do, then we need to listen. Ellen White's principles of Bible interpretation. Number one, take the Bible as it reads. She says, Great Controversy, page 88, the truths most plainly revealed in the Bible have been involved in doubt and darkness by learned men who, with a pretense of great wisdom, teach that the scriptures have a mystical, a secret, spiritual meaning not apparent in the language employed. And then she goes on and she says, if men would but take the Bible as it reads, if there were no false teachers to mislead and confuse their minds, a work would be accomplished that would make angels glad, unquote. So the first principle, take the Bible as it reads. Remember, the first publication of the Bible in the vernacular, vernacular language at the time of the Reformation was a major event in human history and in the history of Christianity because it made the Word of God available to everybody. So this is for you and me. 
as individual believers. Take the Bible as it reads. You have a question, you have an issue, you have a problem, take the Bible as it reads. The second principle, focus on the Bible's plain statements. She says, quote, men ignore the plain statements of the Bible to follow their own perverted reason, priding themselves in their intellectual attainments, they overlook the simplicity of truth. Simplicity of truth. Review and Herald, January 27, 1885. Number three, the third principle. The language, quote, this is a quote, the language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning. Great Controversy, page 598. And in the throes of coming into this church, I was thrilled when I read these simple, uncomplicated principles of Bible interpretation. Principles that are easy to understand and, and easy to apply by any person who believes the Bible is the Word of God, who reads it in faith, who trusts its counsel, seeks to understand it, and is determined to live by its truth. You don't need advanced academic degrees or training in the biblical languages to use Ellen White's three principles and arrive at valid and trustworthy conclusions. Luther once remarked that a farmer with the Bible in his hands has more wisdom than all the bishops of the church together. Now, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone, anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, by the way, the Greek word is episcopus, so that is sometimes translated bishop. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, or you could translate the Greek, a man of one woman, sober-minded, self-controlled, 
respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So it says, if anyone aspires. How would you define that? Anyone is who? A man or a woman. If anyone aspires to the office. And the office is a position of authority to exercise a specific function of overseer. The Greek term, as I mentioned here, for overseer is episcopus, as it is also in, uh, chap in Titus, chapter 1, verse 7. It's translated overseer in the English Standard Version and bishop in the King James and in the Revised Standard Version. The pronouns in that whole passage that I read could either be translated he or she, but only if the context is ignored. But in order to be accurate and not mislead the reader, the translator, translators had to use masculine pronouns. That's why it continues, it says the overseer must be the husband of one wife, and it says, uh, he, four, verse four, must manage. He, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up. Do you get the point? Now, why, why do all of the pronouns have to be in, translated in the masculine? Where is the key to that? The key is found in verse 2, husband of one wife. It's talking about, is a husband a man or a woman? a man. That's the obvious meaning. So because it's talking about a man, all of the pronouns that follow have to be interpreted or translated in the masculine gender. Do you see that? In other words, that person, that someone must be, that's an imperative. must be above reproach, must, above reproach, must be the husband of one wife or man of one woman. 
So the obvious meaning of the language is that the office of the overseer, that is one who oversees the spiritual life of the church, is to be occupied by a man. And the intent is clear, as far as I'm concerned anyway. Now, some people think I'm just being a grumpy old man and I don't appreciate women. I do. And by the way, if you study the role of women in Scripture, God has a, a superlative role for women. It's superlative. This is not a matter of being anti-women. So being the husband of one wife or man of one woman is a prerequisite to the list of qualifications. In other words, it's first. This person is, has to be a man and then the qualifications follow. Well, if a minister and his wife are divorced because the minister has committed adultery, can he still function as a pastor? No, I'm sorry. He cannot. What about, what about a bachelor? Pardon? Could a bachelor be... Yeah, that's a question. Uh, Paul was not married, nor was Timothy married. And they were both. Paul was an apostle. Timothy was a leader in the church. So I don't think that we can take it that far. Now, the young man that's my associate right now, he's a bachelor. He's single. He's 31 years old. He would like to be married, but he hasn't found the one yet. And uh, uh, I think the Lord would prefer pastors to be married because that would give them the kind of experience that helps them understand many of the problems that exist in their churches, you know, in families and so on. Uh, Anyway, that's, that's all I can say because it isn't that clear. Anyway, by no stretch of, of the imagination could that phrase, husband of one wife, be made to read wife of one husband or person of one person. And we need to keep that in mind too, especially today in the midst of this gender confusion that we're in in our society. And to conclude that Paul's use of masculine language does not preclude the possibility of women serving in that office is hypothetical. It defies logic 
by denying Paul's statement of fact. Now, let's turn to Titus. 1st chapter we'll read from verse 7 Well let's start uh let's start with verse 5 Paul writes to T Titus Titus is in on the island of Crete and Paul says this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's quite a statement. Now here Paul, again, clearly identifies overseers or bishops, pastors, elders, as as uh, male. And it's obvious that elder does not refer to any older person, either male or female, that was already recognized as one with authority among the believers. How do we know that? Because the plain language says that an elder is to be the husband of one wife or man of one woman. What is the obvious meaning here? First, the elder is to be a male. There's no such thing as an elderess. Elder is a male term. Second, he is to be married to a woman, not another man, and to only one woman. The spiritual leader holding the office of overseer, bishop, elder, pastor, in every town is to be a man who upholds God's standards for the institution of marriage. Even if, this, as we raised earlier, can he be a bachelor? If he is a bachelor, he still has to be committed to God's standards for Christian marriage. Yes, we do. And that's a problem. And by the way, that decision was not made at a general conference session. It was not the decision of the world church. 
And I remember I had just become an Adventist in 1971 and 1974, I think that action was taken. And I remember saying, this is trouble for the church because it's going to be used as an argument. Yes, and it is. You know, I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. Anyway, the man who serves as an overseer, bishop, pastor, elder, has to hold firm to the trustworthy word and be faithful to that and hold to that and teach the word of God without fear and without compromise. His ministry rests on the authority of the Bible alone. Not tradition and especially not to the demands of culture at any time, at any place. And that is the obvious contextual meaning of Paul's language here. And Ellen White is faithful to her own principles of interpretation, hermeneutics, and understanding, as well as to the biblical trajectory, which you hear that word used, when she says in Acts of the Apostles, page 95, in the work of setting things in order, she was referring to Paul's letter to Titus, in all the churches and ordaining suitable men to act as officers. Officers. It's an office. The apostles held to the high standards of leadership outlined in the Old Testament scriptures. What was she referring to? The fact that there were no priests in the Old Testament. There were no, apostles, no, no male priests in the Old Testament. There were no male apostles in the New Testament. Jesus appointed no, no female apostles. That's there. It's a fact. And I, I hear people say, well, that was because of the culture of his time. Oh, come on. The trajectory of Scripture is no male priests in the Old Testament, no male apostles in the New, and then Paul's teachings on this in the early church. Pardon? No females. Did I say it wrong? <laughs> yes, that's right. Thank you for that correction. No female priests, no female apostles, no female overseers in the early church for all churches. Now, turn to Galatians 3:28. This is a, a major text used by those who are in support of ordaining women ministers. Galatians 
I'm going to read starting with verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, proponents are saying that this eliminates the gender distinctions. Does it? What is the context? What is Paul talking about? Is he talking about church order? Or is he talking about baptism? Yes. So he says, those of you who, who have been baptized into Christ, you're treated the same, whether you're male or female, by, you know, you're saved by, in the same way that men and women are saved, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, or slave or free, or men or women, you're all one in Christ Jesus. We understand that? Simple. But if you, if you take that to, ex, to the extreme, it fits right in with the gender confusion today. People say, there is no such thing as male and female today. Or you can be whatever you want to be. There's no such thing as biological gender. Which is utter nonsense. And when people talk to me like that, I... I say, if you want to know whether you're a man or a woman, stand in front of a, mir front of a mirror and take your clothes off. Amen. Has nothing to do with the way you think or the way you feel. In the beginning, God created male and female, it says. And he liked what he created. He liked that arrangement. Praise God. So in his instructions to Timothy and Titus concerning the organization of congregations, was Paul simply reflecting the culture of the times? Expressing his personal opinion? Being a male chauvinist? Or was he exercising his apostolic authority? Good question. He writes what he says about male-female roles in the church, 1 Timothy 3.15. He says, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, let, let's, let's, let's say this. In the context of our, of our nation and the democratic system, we live in a republic. Can a woman run for political office? Yes, no problem. Would you vote for a woman if she was running for governor of Michigan? if you agreed with her political philosophy and her plan? 
Of course. This has nothing to do with that. Is a woman qualified to be a professor in a university? Yes. If she has the right training and so on and the abilities, yes. We're talking here about setting things in order in the church. You see the distinction? And this is not a matter of inequality. Men and women were created equal under God, but with different roles. I'm sorry, but that's what the Bible teaches. Paul, when he writes this, appeals to the order of creation. 1 Timothy 2.13, that Adam was formed first, then Eve. And by doing that, he affirms the male headship principle established by God at creation. Now, male headship does not mean domination. I mean, this is crazy. I, I get dizzy when I read that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean domination. It doesn't mean that the male can... What word do I want? Uh, the, you know, the Bible is clear. The husband's duty is to love his wife sacrificially. Love is always sacrificial. And if he doesn't love her, how can she be submissive? The wife is to be submissive, but how can she be submissive if her husband doesn't love her, is not kind to her, is not good to her, does not provide for her? You see? What's so complicated about that? The, the, the institution of marriage was established by God, and it's wonderful. I love my wife. I'm so happy in my marriage. Yes. The whole problem seems to come from following human nature. Yeah. Because that's where selfishness comes in and that's where dominance and, and uh, superiority and yeah. modeling, all that comes out of selfishness, not out of scripture in relationship to the plan of God. Yeah. A husband is to love his wife like Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave his life. All right. What Paul says is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, like everything else in the Bible. Therefore, the language that he chose is not irrelevant and meaningless, and we cannot ignore it. any more than we can ignore the language of the scriptures when it comes to the Sabbath. Furthermore, the culture of his time or our time is not a trustworthy principle of Bible interpretation because culture changes. Ellen White wrote in early writings, page 96, numberless words need not be put upon paper 
to justify what, it, what speaks for itself and shines in its clearness. Listen, truth is straight, plain, clear, and stands out boldly in its own defense. But it is not so with error. Error is so winding and twisting that it needs a multitude of words to explain it in its crooked form. Let the plain, remember first, the first volume of Selected Messages 181, let the plain, simple statements of the Word of God be food for the mind. This speculating upon ideas that are not clearly presented there is dangerous business, unquote. And finally, speaking of himself as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God, that is one who cares for and protects the word, Paul says, that it is, quote, required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. In other words, that they can be depended on to stay true to the word of God. And he applied that to himself in the same text in verse 6. He says, for your benefit... He applied it to himself for your benefit to the reader that you may learn by or from us. That is to say, Paul and his companion, Apollos, not to go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So as stewards of the mysteries of God, it is our duty to affirm and sustain the biblical trajectory that began before the fall and to which 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are obviously being faithful and not go beyond what is written in Scripture. And it's also our duty to protect the church from what I call a hermeneutical disaster. And to ask if Paul really means <clears throat> that an elder is a man brings to mind the serpent's question to Eve in Genesis 3.1 when the serpent said, did God actually say don't eat? of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did he really say that? Did Paul really say this? You see, doubt leads to disbelief and disbelief leads to disobedience. Which is Satan's intended consequence. That's why he asked that question of Eve, did God really say he was introducing doubt, which led to disbelief and then disobedience, and we have Adam and Eve's fall into sin. It becomes easy to disobey 
and then convince other people to do the same. Jesus asked in Luke 18.8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What kind of faith was he talking about? Faith in God's word, in God's will. Faith in God's love, in his grace, in his mercy, in his redeeming, transforming power. Now let's rephrase that and ask this. When Jesus comes, will he find faithfulness in his church? Faithful to what? Faithful to his word, to his will, to his revealed truth. Now, I know there are, there are folks in, that don't agree with what I've said on this. But all I could say is, with Luther, here I stand. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. And I believe in my deepest heart this is the safest way for the church to go. Now, is there room in ministry for women? Is God calling women to ministry? Read some of those marvelous things that Ellen White says about women in ministry. What, is their, what are they uh, most capable of? You know, you look it up. Yes, there is. But the question then is, what ministry? See, we need to train the ladies that God is calling into that kind of ministry. We need to train them for that ministry. And then Ellen White says we can set them apart for that by the laying on of hands. And by the way, we lay hands on people other than at ordinations. We lay hands on babies when, we're, when we uh, dedicate. dedicate them. We lay hands on people when they're baptized. We lay hands on people when they're commissioned as uh, teachers in our schools. We lay hands on deacons and elders and, and so on. Pardon? Yeah, and people that are sick. We pray for them to lay hands on them. So to lay hands on somebody doesn't mean that they're ordained to the office of overseer. Anyway, we, have, we need to be much in prayer because we are in danger of being disunited. I would hate to see that happen. And nobody is more regretful than I am that, that the issue of women's ordination is the one that, that caused the, the real issue of, of how we interpret Scripture to come to, to the foreground. That's the real issue. And that's why I titled my book, The Tip of an Iceberg.
the ordination issue is just the tip of the iceberg. The submerged portion of an iceberg, which is the most dangerous, and in this case is principles of interpretation, that's the real issue. Well, thanks for listening. Can I have a volunteer to pray? Our gracious Father in heaven, we're grateful for the opportunity to have attended this seminar. And uh, I pray that you will guide us as we think about the future of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and where it is going. Help us to use our influence in, in the direction of keeping the, our church in its mission true to the Word of God. Bless Dr. Holmes and his family. Bless all of us and bless this camp meeting. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.